to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Thanks very much for the introduction. Thanks to, uh, to all of you for braving the rather awful weather to be here. Um, I'm very happy to be here to talk about the place that I work. And it is not far from where, we, where you are right now. It's in uh, Bloomsbury, as Professor Carlisle said, just below the Euston Road between here, basically, and Euston Station. But I suspect many of you have never seen the place or noticed it if you've walked by. It's just in front of Woburn Square. And on a sunny day, there are people hanging out, smoking cigarettes outside. Generally, I don't think they'll be here today. But you can recognize it by the insignia, which is above the door. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that insignia as a very representative symbol of what goes on in that building. And not just any kind of symbol. You may be wondering about the title I gave this, uh, Laboratory, Arc, and Cosmogram. It's a laboratory. The, the Warburg Institute is a laboratory for cultural science. It's an arc, a building which attempts to contain all of the entities of creation. And it's a cosmogram, that is to say, an image, a representation, an embodied concrete representation of everything in the universe. And that symbol is the cosmogram and kind of the badge or symbol or, or the totem of the Warburg Institute. So there it is and you can cite it, you can recognize it in relation to the Senate House Library, the great tower or ziggurat of the, the Sen Senate House. It's just a couple blocks up the road from the Senate House Library. And for all intents and purposes, it is a normal library. We have books in it. We have uh, computer access to the volumes. We have librarians to help you find your way. It is open it is to students. All you need is a card and a reason for why you're going. So you're welcome to go there. It is a remarkable place for many reasons. One of them is that it has open stack access to amazing treasures. And so that's not an invitation to come and steal the books. It's an invitation to come and use them because you can get them off the shelf, borrowing one next to the other, following what we call the good neighbor policy. So the good neighbor policy doesn't just mean that you don't steal the books. It also means that the books are aligned and organized according to a system that is entirely unique to the Warburg Library. Okay, the, each, each level is organized according to one key term, image, word, orientation, and action. And that is Warburg's own system for thinking of the relation between different phenomena and how they relate culturally, mentally, psychologically, culturally. The good neighbor policy is the fact that the books are, are put next to each other based on the ways in which they speak to each other. So although you might find a series of books by the same author, say Dante, right, in the catalog, when you go to the shelf, you'll find Dante possibly next to Aquinas, possibly next to Ovid, possibly next to a history of architecture, where you would find connections 
that you would not expect and you wouldn't find by using an ordinary card catalog. The books speak to each other and provoke new connections by the way in which they're organized. So that's the good neighbor policy. So a few founding dates, just to orient you. And the question would be, when was the Warburg Institute founded? And there's no simple answer. You could date it to the moment that its founder, A.B. Warburg, who you're going to hear a little more about, decided to buy a house in Hamburg, Germany, and to make one room his library. Or he could date it to the moment when he bought the house next door and made it into a standalone research institute. Or you could date it to the moment when it moved from Germany, 1934, to London, not yet to the location it now is in, but in 1958, it moved to Woburn, Woburn Square. So we'll track a little of the history of this very unique place, um, which in itself holds together as archeological strata, really, um, many layers of history, its own history, but also the history of culture and the movements of culture, ideas, and images across space and time. So Warburg had the idea of a genius loci, uh, the, the special spirit of the place that would be invoked every time you walked across the threshold. And that's true in the original Hamburg building as well as the current London, London building. And that spirit of the place, the genius of the place, was Mnemosyne. Mnemosyne is a figure from Greek mythology, and she is the mother of the muses. Now, the muses are these divinities that you invoke when you want to create something. They're the divinities that aid with the creation of poetry, of history, of astronomy, of, of drama, tragedy, and dance. Right? Each of them is personified as a particular goddess who helps people along in the creative arts and in the scholarly arts. But before there were the muses, there was mnemosyne. The, the word mnemosyne sometimes is hard to pronounce. And it is also the root for mnemonic. Right? It means memory. So she's the goddess of memory. Before you can create, you have to remember. So Warburg imagined his institute as a temple to an extent, to this goddess, Mnemosyne, invoking her every time you walk through the door. So the building itself is devoted to the preservation and study of cultural memory in many different traditions. It's devoted to mapping the movement of images and ideas across time and space. And in particular, what it's best known for, although it does much more, is tracking the movement of the classical tradition, ancient Rome and Greece, its precursors, the precursors to ancient Greece and Rome, and the rediscovery of the classical tradition in the modern world, and in particular in the Renaissance, right? In 15th century Italy above all, but then with ongoing movement that really is the birth of modernity. So how do certain ideas, certain images, certain ritual forms begin in one culture, begin in one religious and ideological tradition, and then move, get transformed and reinvented, moving through space, moving through time, taking on new meanings, and still bearing with them some of that original force. How does memory activate itself, come to life in the present? And how is the history of the West and of all cultures a constant reanimation of memory in new forms, in new settings, in new contexts. 
So it's a history, it's a building devoted to the ancient tradition, but above all, to how it gets remembered and the way in which it gets remembered over and over with different emphases, with different impacts at different times and places. So that image above the door comes from Isidore of Seville, um, a medieval philosopher, theologian, an encyclopedic uh, philosopher who gathered together all the strands of ancient learning in a series of books. It was updated, remembered, right? Reinvented in the 15th century um, by Johann Mentelin in this symbol, Mundus Annus Homo, world year human. So this image is representing basically the entire universe, mankind, humanity, as dependent upon the changings of the seasons, the year, but also the overall structure of the world. And what holds those patterns, those cycles, the seasonal cycles in place is the, the four elements, fire, earth, air, and water, right? That, in the classical view, going back to Aristotle and even earlier, those are the basic elements that make up the world. But those aren't just outside. They are also present in the human body. They manifest as choleric, as the, the various humors in ancient medicine, choleric, phlegm, right? Phlegm is, is one of the basic uh, uh, fluids that makes up the body. Blood and melancholy, cholera, right? So in the ancient medical views, especially those of Galen, those humors, those four humors and their proportion determine how well or ill you are. They determine what your character is. If you're sanguine, you're very energetic, very courageous. If you're choleric, you're much more reserved, tending toward melancholy. But Whatever the distribution of those humors may be in your body, they also change depending on the seasons. So in summer, it's, it's hotter and drier, and that activates the choleric. And the same is true for each of the moments. So what is going on outside of you? The structure of the cosmos, the structure of nature, and the way it changes over time has a direct impact on what's going on inside of you. And it's that interrelation between the world, and of course, the different categories we use to understand the world, and the inner experience, and also the collective social forms of humanity that the Warburg is dedicated to studying. How those ideas change over time, and with those changing ideas, how the understanding of what humans are changes over time. So who's Abby Warburg? Well, he's the guy in that picture there with his son, sitting in his private library, which then is transformed over the course of a decade into a research institute in Hamburg. He called himself a Hamburger from the heart. No, that's a terrible translation. By, by heart, he's from Hamburg, right? He's born from Hamburg. He's Hebrew or Jewish by blood. He's from a Jewish family that had been in Hamburg for a, several centuries of a Florentine soul, okay? So he, identifies with the city that he was born in, Hamburg, identifies also with his religious lineage as a Jew, but also identifies with the soul of Florence, which is where he did much of his study. He is the son of the Warburg dynasty, you might call it, which is an extremely rich banking family. It is now, it was then. Um, he was the firstborn son, which meant that he was poised to take over the family business from the moment he was born. He's the one who would inherit it and be the director of the bank. Fortunately for him, he wasn't the only child in the family, and he did not like banking. His 
parents encouraged him to, to take up this, this family occupation, he'd much rather spend his time in books, looking at pictures, drawing. So he made a deal when he was very young, age 13, with his younger brother, Max, that if Max would take over the direction of the bank, Abby would let him do it. And Max was like, great, I'd love to do this. I'd love to run this bank. But on one condition, which is that you allow me, Abby said, to buy any book that I want. And Max said, good, that's a deal. And later, Max would come to regret it because of the great quantity of books that Abby would set out to, to buy. But at this moment, they're all getting along very well, smiling and laughing with each other. Max went on to move to the United States, where he became a huge advocate for central banking. And the Federal Reserve, the national banking organization in the US, is really due to his, his pressure and his, his ideas. His son, James, became an advisor for Franklin Delano Roosevelt and really steered the economic policies of the New Deal. And he's remembered um, in pop culture, interestingly, as the inspiration for Daddy Warbucks in Little Orphan Annie, the name Warburg and Warbucks. Um, he was the heroic banker of the, the era of the Depression. So Abby himself, looking melancholically out the window in Florence, made this deal with Max, moved to Florence um, to do research for a PhD thesis on Botticelli. He travels to the US, I'll tell you a bit more of that, comes back to Florence and then comes to Hamburg. So I wanted to give you a little information about Warburg's own research. Because really, as I said, it started as a private library. It was his own books that he wanted to do his own research. But in a way, it got so big that it, he couldn't keep it in the house. But also, having amassed this huge collection, he saw that it could be useful for many other people than himself. But what was he looking for in those books? Well, he was above all interested in art history. And at the time he started out, there was a, a school, a very influential school of art historians looking at the Renaissance inspired by their beauty, inspired by the sentimental effects that they produced, emphasizing the, the purely aesthetic, right? Here is a, a Botticelli, um, this is spring. Here is an uh, apogee of proportion, form, movement, delicate line, etc. Warburg was very much interested in the aesthetic but he was also interested in the ideas that drove the certain uh, specific choice of aesthetic. What were the cultural ideas? What were the driving philosophies behind an image like that? The moment in which he came of age was a moment when science was very much on the ascendant. Rationality, empiricism, method, these all seemed to be ways of getting a better grasp on the world. He wanted to apply, when he started out, a scientific method to art history. And what he called his own method was a Kulturwissenschaft, a cultural science, to apply the progress of the physical and material sciences to the arts, to cultural products. And that meant looking very carefully at art objects in context. Who made them? Who were they commissioned for? How were they used immediately? What, what, what was the reason that it was produced? And then what did people do with them? So that meant for him tracing lots of slips of paper, as he said, going through the archives, going through the histories of the families, of the painters, but also of the people who bought them. And what he discovered, for example, with Primavera of Botticelli, it was commissioned by the Medici family, the, the very powerful Florentine family. Um, at the occasion of a marriage, it was inspired directly, he realized, 
by a specific philosopher, Marsilio Ficino, who had been translating the works of the Neoplatonic philosophers that had been lost for centuries, recently rediscovered in Florence in the 15, 14th and 15th centuries. This is a painting that represents many of the ideas of Neoplatonic philosophy, as well as bringing forward Greek pagan philosophy, right? Images from Greek pagan philosophy. The figure in the middle is Venus. Um, at the right is Chloris, the, the goddess of, of plants, being pursued by Mercury, being then transformed into Floris, being turned into flowers. Apparently, there are over 100 different plant species and flowers represented in this painting, painted with, with great uh, precision. Here is Mercury. On this side, looks like he's picking an orange, but he's actually pushing away the clouds of spring to, to, to prepare, the, the clouds of winter to prepare the spring. So, and the three figures here are the three graces. One in the middle, chastity, is being targeted by Cupid above. So chastity is going to be get an arrow shot at her from Cupid. So this is an allegory of springtime, but also an allegory of romantic erotic love, drawing upon the pagan gods of antiquity, invoking them, certainly symbolically, but according to Warburg, it's not merely symbolic. There is a sense in this period of the Renaissance, especially if you closely read Marsilio Ficino and his reading of Ovid and earlier, earlier Greek figures and Roman figures, that those gods, although very much under shadow during the medieval period, never went away and still have powers that can be evoked by the right kinds of rituals, by the right deployment of symbols, by the right incantations. What they were discovering in the 15th century was a long tradition of magic that existed alongside of Christianity and in a way fed into Christianity in the rituals around the sacrament. Because what is the sacrament? What is the Eucharist, if not a miraculous, magical transformation of something material into something spiritual, right? The bread becomes the body of Christ in the Christian sacrament of Eucharist. That's one narrow branch of the magic, the magical doctrines that were part of the classical tradition that in the 15th century were being rediscovered and celebrated rather brazenly right, rather unashamedly in works like Botticelli, right, alongside the devout practices of, of going to church and um, spending time with and, and supporting cardinals and bishops and, and popes, which is what the Medici spent a lot of time doing. They were also decorating their palaces, decorating their rooms, filling, filling their, their, their houses with this kind of imagery, which very sincerely in many ways invoked pagan gods. And that tension between magical antiquity and modern, well, medieval Christianity, for Vorberg, is the engine of modernity. The tension between two different worldviews is part of what drives, from the 14th and 15th century onward, this look, this move forward to look for new possibilities and new kinds of syntheses. So this is part of what Vorberg is looking for in making sense of an image like this. And unlike other scholars of the Renaissance who were working at the time or immediately before him, above all, Jakob Burkhardt, who'd written The Civilization of the Renaissance, which is an extremely influential history book. Burkhardt thought that what's definitive of the Renaissance is the discovery of the individual, 
that, that the individual alone can, is responsible for his or her own fate and must combat fortune right, to, to make their way in the world. Warburg agrees that that is part of what's going on in the Renaissance, but he also pays attention very closely to the new cultural, social, collective forms that are emerging at this time, like the ritual forms around a painting like this or around a painting like this of, of Venus. So it is very much about a novel interaction of traditions, right? Two memories brought together in a new way, the Christian and the pagan, producing a kind of modernity, right? A new, a new way of seeing the world. That's an intellectual process, right? It's a combining of ideas. It's also obviously an aesthetic process, right? You, you have figures here that in some cases harken back to medieval Christian art, but also to classical pagan art combined together. But for Warburg, it's equally important that it's an emotional process, that there's something evoked in the flowing of the hair of Venus here, the flowing of the clothing of, of her attendant, of the movement of the winds, the blowing, that is meant to activate a real sense of being there, of being stirred by the painting itself. There being a, a force, right, a, a, a universal human energy that can get activated by certain kinds of art, by certain kinds of aesthetic and symbolic representations that goes beyond their meaning, right? Beyond whatever you, you can explain it to, and interpret it as that directly speaks to you, that directly awakens something in you. And again, this goes back to Ficino and Neoplatonism and the sense that there are animate forces in the universe that through the proper manipulation of symbols, images, ritual, and speech can be activated and harnessed. Art is a continuation, modern art, at least in its, in its early days, is a continuation of that power of incantation, evocation, and really magic. It's, it is a magical instrument. And that endures even though we're now looking at this painting in a very different moment. This is part of Arborg's idea, that those energies, even if they're forgotten, even if they're not described in, in a later period, can be awakened simply by the contact of your senses and the object. One of the inspirations for our work here is a philosopher you may have heard of, Friedrich Nietzsche, and above all the book, the, the Birth of Tragedy. In The Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche opposed two different aspects of Greek culture. And he saw these both at work in tragedy. Before Nietzsche, philosophers or historians looking at Greece had focused on what Nietzsche calls the Apollonian aspects. So the god Apollo, the god of music, of reason, of order, looking at the Greeks as the embodiment of proportion, of rationality, of even-handedness, right, and, and of harmony. That's certainly part of Greek culture, Nietzsche points out. But on the other hand, there is also the Dionysian. Dionysus, the, the god of the revel, the god of drink, the, the god of a kind of divine madness, who was celebrated not in orderly music, but in wild, raucous celebrations. And tragedy, Greek tragedy, represents the resurgence of the Dionysian, this force of unreason that constantly threatens to upset the rational projects of humanity. And there's a whole aesthetic cult, which is also a religious cult around Dionysus. That opposition between the Apollonian and the Dionysian is something that Warburg sees at work throughout history. 
while the Renaissance has been studied by people like Burkhardt, who I just mentioned, as the dawning of rationality, of reason, of, of modern progress through science and observation, Warburg wants to show that the Dionysian is also there as well. This openness to the irrational, to the magical, to the spontaneous, the uncontrollable, the dynamic as opposed to the static. And artworks contain that tension as well and reactivate that tension. So what he wanted to do in putting his library together was track the movement of some of these themes and ideas and images as they went above all from east to west, but with lots of movements also from south to north and back again in different directions over centuries, over, over actually a couple of millennia. Starting as far east as India, moving through the Middle East, through Turkey, arriving in Byzantium, passing to Italy, to Northern Europe, and then even as far north as um, England. Generating transformations in, in culture, creating new cultural forms, but bringing with them lots of new interpretations of very old imagery and ideas. The set of images and ideas that he was most interested in tracing was astrological images. The embodiments in the, star, in the stars and in the heavens of the gods, of those hidden powers which the Greeks invoked in their rituals and which in the medieval period, think back to Isidore of Seville, people saw as operating on the human body. So the images of the astrological figures continue through all these movements but reinvented with new emphases over time. And what his library, one of the key themes of his library was doing, was tracking over a millennium and more the movement of the pagan gods, the ways they get discovered, forgotten, and rediscovered in different moments. And along with them, many other cultural themes like magic, like ritual, the ways in which those gets transformed over time. Now this is a story, this part of the story, very much focused on the Mediterranean, right? Going as far east as India, but really a question for him starting in Germany, how did these ideas influence the culture that he grew up in, in Northern Europe? But he also suspected that those movements had a much longer trajectory and actually could be understood as part of a world culture, a global culture, in part through diffusion, through contacts of people, because the movement of ideas doesn't only move west, it also moves east, but also through the unity of humanity. The fact that the energies and interests and perceptual capacities that are available to someone like Botticelli are available anywhere in the world. So as he was starting his, culture, his cultural science, his science of culture, at the same time in many universities in Germany, in the UK, worldwide, there was an interest in a new science of culture or anthropology a comparative study of human rituals and practices and beliefs, and the differences between them, as well as the continuities between them. So inspired by anthropology, in the 1890s, Warburg called in a few connections in New York and went to the US. In New York, he talked to Franz Boas, who was the founder of American Anthropology, who connected him with someone named Frank Hamilton Cushing, who was an anthropologist living among the Hopi people, the Pueblo people in New Mexico and Arizona. And Hamilton Cushing had been living there for over a decade and in a sense had become one of them. He had undergone initiations with them. He introduced Warburg on his trip to 
the, the Pueblo people. He spent a month there getting to know them, learning about their rituals, learning about their art, learning about their aesthetics as well as their beliefs. And one of the uh, things that it, uh, obsessed him while he was there was the Hopi snake dance, which is a dance through which members of the, the, the Hopi men, young men, would grab hold of snakes and dance with them, poisonous snakes, not be bit by them, uh, maneuvering them in such a way that they're working with them, not exactly controlling them, but at least not being overtaken by them. So he found this incredibly interesting, and I'll come back to what he thought about it, because it plays an important part in his life. Comes back from the US, gets to work in Hamburg, gets very involved in the building of a new university there, the University of Hamburg. He becomes friends with a philosopher named Ernst Kersierer, who is named the first philosopher, who's given the first chair of philosophy in Hamburg. And this was very significant because Kassir, like Warburg, came from a Jewish family. This was the first time that a professorship had been made for a Jewish person in Germany. So this was meant to be a, a kind of culmination of a progression of assimilation, where Jews who had been, in many ways, excluded for Germ from German culture were brought in to society at the highest levels. Kassir could now be a professor. And that was part of the modernity, part of the progress orientation of Hamburg that Warburg saw himself helping make possible. But as you can already see from the, what, what you've heard, Warburg's juggling a lot of intellectual balls at this point, right? He's, he's really thinking through a pretty big landscape, a pretty wild and uh, wide panorama, basically trying to solve the history of culture worldwide, trying to figure out you know, a key to make sense of any artwork, trying to make sense of reason as much as madness, and at a certain point, um, specifically in 1918, he has a breakdown. He, anachronistically, we could say that he was manic depressive or bipolar, and he had a very low period in around 1918. He's committed to an asylum and is there for several years in a Swiss asylum. He starts to show progress, um, and his doctors say, well, we'll let you out if you can show that you're reasonable, if you can show that you can resume your activities as you had done before. So what had he been doing before? Well, he was a professor. So give us a lecture. And if it's not too crazy, we'll let you out. So he gave then his famous serpent ritual lecture um, based on his travels with the Hopi. And he presented it in the asylum to the Dr. Ludwig Binswanger, who's a very influential uh, psychoanalyst. And needless to say, well, I will say it, um, people were persuaded. Great lecture, you're free. So he went, he went to resume his studies. And I think putting this lecture together put a new spin for him on what he'd been doing before. The lecture started from the imagery of serpents that he'd seen in that snake dance, which he saw repeated over and over in Hopi buildings and uh, altars and, and in, in drawings spontaneously. He gave children, Hopi children, pieces of paper to, and asked them to describe, um, to, to draw a picture of their house, to draw a picture of weather. When they drew lightning, they made lines that looked like these serpents coming down. So the serpent is really part of Hopi culture, and the taming of it is a big part of their self-understanding. But Warburg, knowing well the classical tradition, realizes that even the god of medicine in Greece, right, in Greece as well, the serpent is an important figure. 
And the conquering and the working with the serpent is a figure that appears, appears over and over in Greek art and philosophy. So this seemed to be, to him, the key to something fairly universal, which is, again, this sense of motion and emotion that is a natural force outside of us that we attempt to contain and make sense of through ritual, through symbol, through art. Contain it, but yet never completely master it because it's unleashed, it breaks loose, it goes wild if, we're not, if we don't maintain the proper distance between ourselves and nature. So that's what he's arguing in the snake ritual, in the serpent ritual lecture. He concludes with this picture, which he calls Uncle Sam. He took it when he was in Washington, D.C., coming back, which is this guy in a top hat walking in front of what looks like a Florentine uh, a chapel with, above him, the lines of the telegraph of the electric wire, of the electric telegraph. So this juxtaposition of modernity and Renaissance classicism strikes him as uh, rather striking. He concludes with this very uh, ambiguous statement. The modern Prometheus and the modern Icarus, Benjamin Franklin and the Wright brothers, who invented the dirigible airplane, are precisely those ominous destroyers of the sense of distance who threatened to lead the planet back into chaos. This is 1923. Telegram and telephone destroy the cosmos. Mythical and symbolic thinking strive to form spiritual bonds between humanity and the surrounding world, shaping distance into the space required for devotion and reflection. This distance is undone by the instantaneous electric connection. So I'm not saying I perfectly understand what Warburg's saying here. I think it's good enough to let him out of the asylum, but I think it's still a bit, bit complex and confusing. What I hear him saying is that ritual and art, traditionally, classically, in all cultures of the world, are about reckoning with the forces of the universe, but inserting enough distance that one can reflect on them, that there's time to separate oneself from them, even as one grapples with them. But with the speed of electricity, with the speed of the telegraph, the speed of the airplane, that distance, the time to stop and think, is gone. Right? There isn't time to reflect. The, the space of thought, what he calls the dank realm, has been eclipsed, has been abridged. And no longer is there that space, which for him is necessary for stability, for culture. The unleashing of these new electrical speeds, for him, are a harbinger of the resurgence of that Dionysiac force, that irrationality, that chaos, that centuries of civilization had tried to keep at bay or tried to wrestle with in such a way that it doesn't overcome them. And there's something weird and prophetic about Warburg saying this in 1923, when 10 years later, in his home country, real forces of chaos, real forces of explicit paganism, right, a return to paganism, pagan imagery, real forces of destruction, right, gleeful destruction for the sake of destruction alone, are going to be unleashed on the world. He seems to be tapping in to something that's, that is alive in his period, in, in his age, and is really quite troubled by it. He leaves the asylum, sets up his Kulturwissenschaftliche Bibliothek, his, his library of cultural science, which is directly connected to the University of Warburg, for which he is a, a, a very significant patron. What is he thinking about in this institute? Okay, what's he trying to do? Well, I've mentioned some of what he wants to collect in the library, but he doesn't want it just to be a, a library for reading. It is also a library of invocation. I mentioned mnemosyne, 
it evokes and invokes the goddess of memory, the, the central reading room is in the shape of an ellipse. That's the figure that for Johannes Kepler was the figure, the, the shape of the orbits of the planets, which turned out to be what we now believe. Newton built on Kepler to produce his system of the world. But Kepler, in making this great leap forward for rational science, very explicitly said he was inspired not only by Platonism, by the image of the, the Platonic solids, the simplest solids that exist, nestled one inside the other. That image he then developed geometrical consequences of to arrive at his understanding, his numerical understanding of the movements of the planets. So on the one hand, he's inspired by Neoplatonic symbolism, just as much as Ficino, just as much as Marsilio Ficino had been. On the other hand, he said he arrived at that image, that vision, in a dream. So this is the birth of modern rationality, of modern science, right? This is what Newton builds on to create his mechanical universe. And Newton says, I got it through a dream. I got it through the inspiration of the Platonic solids. And it's that combination of symbolism and inspiration with rationality that Warburg wants to memorialize in the library by putting an ellipse on the ceiling, but making it in the shape of an ellipse. It's also a, a, a place for making, finding, and interpreting images. And these are in black and white, and they look a little crusty, but trust me, this is extremely high-tech data management from the early 20th century. There are two slide projectors. There is a machine for making photographs very quickly, for amplifying, for blowing up images, for reproducing them, and, and copying them, cutting and pasting. And he wanted this be, to be a place to work with images. It was also a publishing house. To work directly on images as well, to treat them as specimens in a laboratory. And out of that, in these new working conditions, he came up with his last unfinished work, which is the Builder Atlas, or the Atlas of Images, Mnemosyne, the goddess of memory. And these, these are images, 63 different tablets, squares, sort of blackboards, with images that he's taken from his collection, magnified, clippings that he's been collecting from the papers, from different books, juxtaposed to reveal the con continuation, the, the, the continuities, and the bifurcations of these histories of the movement of images and meanings, of energies over time and space. So it started in 1924, but was still unfinished when he died. He's attempting to map how images of symbolic, intellectual, and emotional power emerge in antiquity and are reanimated in later times and places. So as I mentioned, he wanted those images not just to tell a story, but also to evoke that same power that he saw in them and that their original beholders had seen in them. He hoped that the new beholder would respond with the same intensity to the images of passion or suffering, mental confusion or serenity as he himself had done in the work. So just a quick example of what's going on in that builder atlas. These are 63 massive panels that had originally lined the library that he would show and walk through with people when he wanted to introduce them to his ideas. The first panel shows the movement, again, that astrological map, as well as a genealogical chart of the Medici family. So a movement of people, of, of generations, and also a movement in time and space. The middle one contains a series of cosmological images from the late medieval to the early modern, and the last is resolutely modern. I want to look at the middle one first. Across the top, these three images, Hildegard von Bingen, 
here, painted, uh, made this manuscript of the image of Christ as a figure of the world. So Christ, both man and God, as a symbol, but also somehow containing the world in its totality. That same image of the world man transformed a bit later into this idea of the relation between humanity and nature in the astro astrological thinking of the late medieval period and early modern period, and summarized in this book of days, which was a guide for medics. When you consult a patient, you have to know what day it is, you have to know where the planets are, you have to know which astrological powers are at work on your patient in order to be able to cure them. He and his colleague, Fritz Zaxel, understood the history of, of astrology as going through several stages. In the Christian medieval era, there was a use of astrology, but primarily as metaphorical and symbolic. But by the 13th and 15th century, and this is really the rebirth that is the Renaissance, it's part of it, there's a rediscovery of texts and also rediscovery of earlier energies such that they came to believe in the astrological images again. Okay, they're reawakened. It's the reawakening of pagan uh, deities in the, in, in the 13th and 15th century. It was purely illustrative, and now it becomes real again. And then another chapter. At the center of the, the, the second um, image of the Builder Atlas, Leonardo's Vitruvian Man. Again, man, a man spread across the cosmos, but now understood not as the subject of those astrological animist powers, but as a geometrical proportion understood rationally, geometrically, mathematically. And this is an icon of that birth of reason, of geometric reason, in the Renaissance. So after, after astrology not being taken seriously, then being taken seriously, the idea of a relation between micro and macrocosm takes this new geometric, rational form. So right, we're on the road to progress. We're on the road to rationality, yeah? But then immediately afterward, in that same panel, Warburg shows an image which looks very much the same in the upper right. Mankind spread out geometrically across a figure, across the world. These images come 60 years after Leonardo. They look very much the same, but rather than being further down the road to that detached observation, they are a return to the magical thinking that preceded them. Cornelius Agrippa's book is Three Books of Occult Philosophy. It's the book that Frankenstein was reading, that his, his uh, teachers made fun of him for reading because it was so full of nonsense. So even as rationality and detachment appears, there's a constant resurgence, a constant cycling of irrationality, of a return to a more direct, immediate immersion in the forces of the universe, right? The detachment and then the re-immersion. The re this is part of what he's tracing, but always with the question of how does it allow us to get a grip on it? So this is also from Agrippa, um, Cornelius Agrippa's occult philosophy, the images of the astrological meanings of the hand. Understood symbolically, understood magically, but above all, understood practically. How do we grip the world? How do we grip the world such that dirigibles can fly, that air airplanes can fly, that telegrams can send messages across distance? So lots of things to think about in the Mnemosyne uh, collection. Um, as I said, there are 63 tablets, tables there, and the, the relations between the images as you move through them are really evocative and often very, very puzzling. There's a massive scholarly undertaking underway to try to make sense of them. In the last 20 years, Abby Warburg's philosophy has become extremely influential in art history 
worldwide. People are reading Warburg now after having not really read him. They used his library, but didn't read his own books for the intervening 60 years. But now he's being rediscovered. And as, as proof of this, there's a, a show happening this summer, April to June in Berlin, at the Haus der Kultur in der Welt, which is one of the central cultural institutions in Berlin, to re-display the Namasini Atlas with images taken from our collection, from the Warburg collection that were in, in the archive. So you can go and see it for yourself at the scale it was, sometimes with the original images that Warburg himself used. And this is uh, going to be a huge, uh, huge show. In Germany, art history has really reoriented itself towards um, Warburg's interests, and he's having an impact as well on cultural science. Part of the reason for that continued influence is the scholars that he gathered at his institute in, in Hamburg. So one of them is Ernst Kassir, who I mentioned, the philosopher. Another is Erwin Panofsky, who's one of the founders of modern art history. Now, Kassir, when he first visited the institute, the library, said, I never want to come back here. If I return to this labyrinth, I'd, I'd get completely lost. It spoke to him so directly, but so loudly, of the themes he himself had been looking at in the history of culture and symbolic forms that he was scared of uh, suffering the same fate as Abby Warburg. But later, after visiting Warburg in the, in the asylum, he, he, he recognized its importance and that his own work on the history of symbolic forms was directly influenced by it. So sadly, just a few years after starting his institute, um, Warburg died. His brothers took over the trust of the Institute to preserve it over time. And in 1929, in Germany, in the early 30s as well, to preserve this library, which was owned by a Jewish family, seemed an extremely difficult thing to do because Jewish goods were being taken over by the Nazis. The Nazis were denying citizens to Jews, denying basic civil rights, as well as the right to property. So there were many scholars or uh, people working in universities who were uh, friendly to the Nazi regime who had their eye on Warburg's library. In order to preserve it, in order to protect it, they had to get it out of the country. And the place that was its safe haven was London. So in 1933, they shipped, they loaded all the books onto the steamer, an ark, right, an ark to preserve it, and shipped it here to London um, with huge support from the Warburg family, Samuel Courtold, responsible for the Courtold Institute as well. He wanted to merge the Courtold Institute to the Warburg Institute to make it the worldwide premier institute for, this, for art history. It was given in trust to the University of London. You can have this library if you look after it, if you protect it in perpetuity. And that was the, the deal that was signed. It was part of the original vision for the University of London, which here is drawn by Charles Holden, who designed Senate House, Senate House on one end and the Warburg Institute on the other end. This would be a, a huge united building of the Courtauld and the Warburg. As it happened, only the Warburg was built. You can see that it's just a sort of part of that larger grand design. And yet all the, all the um, projects of the Institute moved into it. So it was one of the centers, a real haven, a real arc for refugee intellectuals, Jewish refugee intellectuals in the 1930s, the only cultural institution from Nazi Germany that survives intact in Britain today. Ernst Gombrich is a, a historian of art and a philosopher who became one of its directors and uh, really continued its tradition into the future. Among the scholars that have been there, I'll just name a couple. They're in your handout. Francis Yates is uh, one of the great 
standouts. She studied the history of memory practices in the ancient world and in, in the Renaissance, a way of training the mind to remember where things are. But the study of magic continues there by, by works in works by um, Walker and others. And today, it is thriving. It's an institute it's a, where the library is central to what it does, but we also have 50 MA and PhD students. Some are working in art history. Some are working in cultural, intellectual, and visual history. We have a summer school. We have multiple research projects happening there um, and multiple fellowships as well. So from its start as the, the private library of a man who really wanted to understand some fundamental puzzles about the history of Western culture and art, how it's manifested in art, to a very large scale intellectual institute, a place for research, a place for communication in Germany, put on an arc, transported right here to London, it's now still, and again, a thriving center for the history of art, the history of culture, and things are happening there all the time. So I leave you on that note and with the invitation to come check us out, come visit the library and see what we have to offer. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.